Hier komen wij in vreemd. Hello, you're listening to Red Flag Radio. My name's Ros Ward. We're recording the show on Indigenous land that was stolen, that was never ceded, and that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. We have a Patreon account. I like to mention it right at the beginning. Red Flag Radio podcast, if you want to give us any money, we appreciate it. And a few new, new people have popped up in the last couple of weeks, and it's much appreciated. Uh, we hope you enjoy the variety of content that we put out, and uh, this uh, episode I think is going to be a good one. We've got Kath Larkin and Rick Coon, who've both been on the podcast before. You may listen back to their episodes um, if you look back through the previous episodes. So Rick is um, in Canberra. He's a Marxist economist. He's a political analyst. He's an honorary associate professor at the Australian National University and a member of NTU Fightback um, as part of his union work, which is excellent. Um, and he wrote a book about labour and the history of labour, and it's called Labour's Conflict, Big Business, Workers and the Politics of Class um, with our other comrade Tom Bramble, and he's edited uh, Class Struggle in Australia in Australia, uh, Class and Struggle in Australia, sorry, and has written for the International Socialist Review, Monthly Review, Counterbunch, Canberra Times, New Matilda, Red Flag. What have you ever done, Kath? <laughs> <laughs> I've written for um, Red Flag. Kath's been working. Kath's been working hard on the railways as, and as an activist in the Rail, Tram and Bus Union. And um, now we're very pleased to announce, if you haven't already heard, that Kath uh, is going to be running for the Lord Mayor of Melbourne for the Victorian Socialists. You'll do a fantastic job. <laughs> yes, it's going to be so good. So that's October if you're in Victoria, and particularly if you live in the City of Melbourne council area, you can vote for Kath Larkin, and um, it'll be the best vote you've ever made. Um, so we're here with these two guests to talk about the Australian Labor Party, insert your own boos and hisses, um, and really sort of off the back of the latest revelations of the branch stacking scandal. And it was described as branch stacking on an industrial scale here in Victoria. And the centre of it all uh, was the particularly odious figure of Adam Somurek, who was caught on camera in his tracksuit pants getting cash out of an ATM at a petrol station, um, paying people to be members or paying people's membership fees of the Labor Party asking people to forge signatures um, using uh, allegedly using fake addresses. And all of this really for the purpose of um, controlling various members of the Labor Party through the pre-selection process of candidates. So the idea of branch stacking is yeah, to get a bunch of people in the branch who aren't really um, proper members of the Labor Party just by name alone and signature and paperwork uh, and then to basically get people to come along to a meeting and vote for the particular candidate that you want in your particular um, faction. And so Adam Somurek saw himself as the sort of chief among chiefs of branch stacking and controlling um, the internal machinations of the Labor Party and even saying basically he controls who's 
the next premier of Victoria and he controls Dan Andrews, which Dan Andrews didn't like very much. Um, <laughs> but he has previously said that he was a very good friend of Adam Somurek, so something went wrong there. And um, he was kicked out of the cabinet and then let back in. back in. Yeah. So, yeah. Kath, when you first saw it, and it was on 60 Minutes, it was like a 60 Minutes age investigation, what were your first um, reactions to these particular revelations? So I, um, I, I read the Age article first and uh, watched the hilarious and extremely entertaining 60 Minutes thing a bit later. But when I, I was reading the article on the way to work and, like, obviously it was really gross, the kind of total lack of respect for working class people and migrant communities, but none of it was shocking to me. It all felt pretty par for the course ALP antics, although there are some differences, I think, from when they did this in the past, which maybe we'll talk about later. But really, I was kind of like nonplussed by the whole thing. But I did think um, that my workmates would react to it more. Like, uh, you know, it's a blue-collar workplace where almost all union members, most of my workmates are Labor voters, um, you know, really proud of, you know, being working class, hate the Liberals, all of that sort of thing. Um, some of them are even members or, or were members of the Labor Party. So I kind of thought that people would be shocked, upset, hurt, feel betrayed. I kind of, you know, went in being prepared to be you know, sensitive to that. In a way, what I was met with was even sadder. Um, people were mostly really downbeat but unsurprised, kind of like, eh, that's what politicians do. Of course they don't care about us. Um, and I thought it was sad because they're Labor voters, they're working-class people who do think still in, in some way that the ALP is, is our party or, or it's the best that we can do. And it just gives you a sense of how low the Labor Party has managed to set the bar that that people just expect kind of to be treated like this, to be treated like crap. Um, And obviously working people just deserve so much better. Yeah. Yeah, I think actually there was a sense that people were, you know, the media expected ordinary people to kind of be more shocked and then, People were shocked, but it was very quickly like, well, yeah, I mean, it's not it's not new. It just seems like obvious that this stuff goes on. But it is a contrast. I mean, it's not a contrast to recent years, but it is a contrast when you start to go back through the history of the Labor Party and particularly the very early years, the beginning of the Labor Party. And I wanted to talk um, with you, Rick, a bit about that. Um I was reading a Marxist Left Review article by Ben Hillier, which is definitely worth looking up. I'll put it in the notes for the show. Um, that describes some of that history and pulled a quote from um, the Collingwood Observer in 1891 in the by-election where the first Labor candidate was elected, John Hancock. And it read, this is in the Collingwood Observer, every boot factory in Collingwood was turned into a Hancock committee room and hundreds of men with lanterns and rolls, went from door to door appealing to the working folk, whether unionists or not, to lay aside for once all other considerations and go as one man for the Labor candidate. So you can kind of visualise that scene, the boot factories of Collingwood, and, you know, going around saying, this is our party. So 
Would you describe it in the beginning as really a genuinely working class party, Rick, from your oh, historical oh, oh, knowledge? The Labour Party at, at its beginnings was a working class party. It was formed essentially on the initiative of trade union officials and of some uh, working class oriented intellectuals, especially journalists. And its membership was overwhelmingly working class. It was regarded as disreputable by the establishment because it was so working class. But it was founded during what was then called the Great Depression of the early 1890s. And there was a recognition that trade unionism was not enough because the trade unions had been smashed up in the course of the first years of the Depression and it was necessary for Labor to move onto the political stage as a distinct party. And that was very progressive. That was a step forward. But the orientation of the Labor Party from very early on was thoroughly parliamentary. There was a division of Labor between the trade unions, which were engaged in industrial activity, and then the Labor Party, which would run in elections. And during the course of the 1890s, the party effectively fell under the control of trade union officials rather than rank and file working class members of the party, and particularly the officials of the Australian Workers' Union, which was then, and for many years subsequently, by far the largest trade union in Australia, mainly because it primarily covered uh, rural workers. So the bureaucratisation of the Labor Party is something that happened very, very early on in many places outside uh, the inner city suburbs. The Labor Party and the AWU were effectively the same organisation. And subsequently, trade union officials have played uh, a decisive role inside the party. There was certainly a membership which was overwhelmingly working class, not exclusively, but overwhelmingly working class, and that was very distinctive. Uh, and the third element, the third key element in the party was the parliamentarians who, although small in numbers, uh, played had a very important weight in the party. And the orientation of the union officials and of the parliamentarians was that the party should be oriented towards winning elections, not intervening in class struggles or in social struggles, but rather towards winning elections. It should support the trade union, certainly, but it had a distinctive role in this division of labour with a U in it. Hmm. And as far as labour... Just one, one uh, story, though. The, the question of faction fighting and branch stacking goes back a very long way. And I remember, not because I was quite there, but rather because I've read about it, about the ballot box scandal of 1924 in uh, an intense faction fight in the New South Wales Party where an investigation eventually discovered that ballot boxes and internal voting inside the Labor Party had false bottoms so that they could be stuffed. So this was a case of fake ballots as opposed to fake members. Mm. 
Yeah, it's not surprising either, really. Um, yeah, and the history of, of factionalizing as well. But just in terms of, I mean, the broad, if we, again, sort of taking a step back from the details of the current situation, like the whole idea of a socialist um, approach in the Labor Party has been about managing, has been about a different way of managing capitalism. So even like in the 1940s where you get the Keynesian, um, the move towards a kind of Keynesian approach, you wrote in your book, Rick, and, and with Tom, I don't know which one of you wrote this sentence, but um, <laughs> the Keynesian approach held out the prospect of a domesticated capitalism without the need for class conflict. Can you explain a bit about that? Because I reckon that's just very central to what the Labour Party is and does. Well, Prior to the late 1930s and the 1940s, the Labor Party subscribed to uh, a, an unorthodox, well, as, as far as bourgeois economics was concerned, an unorthodox approach to understanding how economies worked, which was an argument that if workers were paid more, then there would be more money to go around and more consumption. It was an under-consumptionist theory of how capitalism worked and where crises came from. There was a guy called Ben Chifley, who you may have heard of, who played a decisive role in a shift away from that unorthodox, what I call trade union under consumptionism, into the mainstream of economics through the adoption of Keynesian economics, which has some uh, overlap with under consumptionism. And he did that because uh, he got a billet as a member of a royal commission into the banking system in 1935. And he was exposed to Keynes's work very early on in Australia and effectively embraced it. And the idea there was that uh, effectively economic crises were a technical problem which could be solved by effective management of the economy by governments. And this was embraced by Chifley as a pioneer in the Labor Party, but then effectively by the Labor Party at large, the vast bulk of the Labor Party. And in the 1930s, it wasn't the orthodoxy, Keynesianism wasn't the orthodoxy uh, inside the ruling class or amongst economists, but during the 1940s, it became the orthodoxy. So there was a confluence of the economic perspectives about how capitalism could be managed by the leaderships of the, the leadership of the Labor Party and the leadership of conservative parties uh, in Australia and around the world. And that adherence to mainstream economics or what has become mainstream economics is something that has continued as the complexion of mainstream economics has changed, as the details have changed. So now we have a neoliberal Labor Party, as far as economic management is concerned, uh, with a heart on its sleeve and a, a bleeding heart on its sleeve, but effectively pursuing neoliberal policies. And just yesterday, um, Anthony Albanese was uh, interviewed about the question of climate change uh, and energy policy. What is his main concern at the moment? To achieve 
a consensus with the government to make sure that there is certainty for business in terms of investment in renewables. So that's a pretty good uh, indication of that overlap between the Conservatives and the Labor Party as far as economic policy is concerned. What's crucial is that there be certainty for business and promoting business confidence. And what at bottom does that mean? Profits have to be maintained. And class collaboration, basically. Which, That's the I mean, road to success. Yep, for the Labor Party. Our comrades across the world. But people do talk about how, you know, even now, uh, one of the points of discussion coming out of the branch stacking stuff has been will this or will this not be good for the, con- the way that the trade unions have an influence in the Labour Party? And this idea that because the trade unions are so influential in the Labour Party, that must be good for workers because workers are what, uh, what makes up a trade union. Therefore, if trade unions have influence in the party, workers have influence. But I think an important distinction that many Marxists have made is that it's not actually uh, the, the trade union movement as a whole, actual workers that the, that the Labour Party um, represents, but it's actually the trade union bureaucracy, which Rick just mentioned, that layer of people who are officials of trade unions and particularly the higher-up leadership of the trade unions. So, Kath, I wonder... As a trade union activist, never an official, can you talk about that distinction in terms of who actually in the trade union movement gets to um, make decisions about the Labor Party? Yeah, so the the trade union bureaucrats or, or organisers, officials, whatever you want to call them, they're not workers. Uh, they don't have the experience of going to work and being exploited by a boss for a profit. Their conditions are not dependent on any struggle that occurs on the shop floor. And it's not union officials who face uh, danger. You know, things like it's not union officials facing danger on the job if safety conditions aren't one. It's not them who face redundancies. Um, But it's not just that, you know, they don't have the the struggles that go alongside uh, being a worker. They also don't have the power. It isn't union officials who have the power to stop profit-making in its tracks, um, you know, which is the, the, the basis of workers' power, the, the basis of you know, our being able not just to fight and, and change things, you know, get a better workplace, uh, you know, make real reforms, also potentially the basis for us to run uh, a whole new society. Union officials don't have that power. Uh, they're in, um, I think, a class of their very own with quite distinct and different interests to us. Um, And, you know, sometimes they line up with us, sometimes they line up uh, more with with the ruling class. Um, You know, really, union officials play this role of kind of mediating um, or negotiating the the rate of exploitation. Their goal is not to get rid of exploitation. That would actually totally do away with the need for them at all. Um, So it's a really different kind of uh, role uh, that, that they play a very different kind of uh, experience. Um, so it's them, uh, actually, that, that have the say in the Labor Party, especially today, 
I think the, you know, we've kind of talked about it a bit, what, what's been exposed by the Somurex stacking um, is that there's really very little interest from ordinary working class people, from rank and file workers. Uh, there's no reason for them really to want to join the party or be active in the party. Um, so nonetheless, the, the, Labor, the, the Labor Party does maintain um, loyalty uh, from the working class, partly uh, through their control of the Labor movement. But even that, I think it's worth saying, is, you know, kind of waning in appeal. So time and again, the whole workers' movement has been sacrificed to keep big business on side so that Labor MPs can get into power. Union officials, you know, acting as a police against their own members to prevent industrial action, or even just straight up using us for electoralism. You know, the, the recent um, Change the Rules campaign, which is in the lead up to the last federal election, most of the rules that needed changing are hangovers from when Labor was in government. It's no surprise then that this $25 million campaign totally failed to inspire and mobilise workers even to the ballot box. You know, this is the party that got rid of industry in industry-wide bargaining uh, and the right to strike outside, you know, the bargaining period back in 1993 that brought in further restrictions on the right to take industrial action in 2009 that allowed the anti-union Australian Building and Construction Commission to continue under a slightly different name with a slightly, you know, reduced budget, which was why it was able to be brought back in so easily uh, by the Liberals. And you know, the Labor Party even opposed the reintroduction of penalty rates until it found it to be electorally useful. And this is the party that union officials have, you know, working people trying to, you know, get out the vote for. Um, you know, so when I think when, when you take all that into account, it's actually not surprising uh, that, you know, none of my workmates were all that shocked or bothered uh, by the corruption. This is what they've come to expect. Um, and this can be done by trade union officials because, you know, much, you know, perhaps in a slightly different way, but most of them, like Somurek, are careerists. They have their careers to think of. They have their future positions in Parliament to think of. Like, that's going to be, you know, impacted based on, you know, what they do as union officials. Um, Bill Shorten himself made his way up the ranks of the Labor Party specifically by selling out workers and uh, by selling out the workers that, that he was supposed to represent so yeah I think that they they use their positions uh, in the unions they use their connection with the with the unions to you know talk about how how much they love the working class how they're on the side of workers uh, but then behind closed doors all they do uh, is, is shit on workers and 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 use us so I think mm. people kind of more and more are starting to see through those lines. Yeah, I think there's definitely a sense that the union bureaucrats often just think about workers in this very functional way, either as voters for the Labor Party or, you know, Sally McManus being interviewed about going into these new um, working groups or whatever they are uh, with the Liberal government to talk about the future relationship between unions and business which she now denies is the second accord, although I thought she said that in the first place. Now she says it's not. But 
when asked about, you know, are you going to lay down your weapons, she says, no, my weapons are all of the workers in the trade union movement and they always stand behind me. As if, you know, you just turn on this tap of of the workers who are trade union members and, and in the same way with Change the Rules, the idea was we can get all these people to vote for the Labor Party, so you should take us seriously. But they don't seem to be able to... Um, Sorry, go, Rick. Yeah, I think it's worth adding that the way in which trade unions are represented in the Labor Party is not under the control of the rank and file of the Mm. trade unions. Who decides who goes to ALP conferences? There's no vote by ordinary members of the trade unions. They have no say. It's decided by the union secretary. And it is not unknown for union secretaries to send student labour hacks as representatives Mm. of their trade unions into Labor Party conferences. And that, I think, reflects a process that's been at work both inside trade unions and inside the Labor Party of a distancing of the backgrounds of the leaderships from the working class. The early Labor Party and even more so the early trade unions were overwhelmingly led by people who had experience of the shop floor, who were workers, who were militants, who'd come up through the ranks of trade unions and then maybe made a switch to uh, the parliamentary party. Not, Not all of them, but that was a typical route. These days, many trade union leaders have not worked in the industries Uh, that their trade unions uh, represent. They have had careers from being Labor Party hacks at a university where they got a degree, maybe a degree that was related to uh, industrial relations or something, although that's hardly taught at universities anymore, Uh, and then were brought in as organisers or industrial officers into trade unions and then made their way up. The, the Labor Party members of Parliament fr- who have trade union backgrounds are uh, overwhelmingly with that kind of a background, but even that is in decline. More and more the Labor parliamentarians, and this is over a period of many, many decades, have been people who do not have a direct trade union experience, but rather are professionals of different kinds uh, people who've been branch activists. So that distance between the the leadership of the Labor Party, both in the machine and also in the parliaments, and the working class has got greater and greater. And there's one other factor that I'll just mention briefly, and that is since the 1890s and the early Labor governments from 1899 in Queensland through the first decade and a bit of the 20th century, the Labor Party has become more and more integrated into the management of capitalism. Mm. And in some states, uh, Labor has been in office more frequently than the Conservatives. So the party as a whole has become much more integrated into the machinery of capitalist administration. And it is no longer disreputable to be a member of the Labor Party it's quite acceptable inside the ruling class uh, to uh, 
have some sort of a Labor Party connection because the bosses know that Labor is no threat. Yeah. And, but one of the problems they have is that nobody really wants to be a member of the Labor Party after all of that. You know, so it, we look at the numbers and actually it's very hard to find out the correct numbers of active branches of the Labor Party around the country. And then obviously um, it's not even just in Victoria. There's always things popping up in New South Wales around, um, you know, checking who the real members of particular branches of the New South Wales Labor Party are. And nationally, very hard to get hold of a total figure. Um, the the peak membership uh, historically was around seventy five thousand people nationally in the nineteen fifties. But basically, membership has never um, increased. And in fact, as the population of Australia has grown, the number of members of the Labor Party um, has gone down. But this has been a problem, really. It's not a recent problem. It's a problem, basically, of recruitment sort of ever since the um, Democratic Labor Party split in the 1950s, uh, it just sort of went down and down. And now, you know, we're looking at um, party figures from 2010 in a national review. John Faulkner did it and said branches are closing on a monthly basis, that maybe there's a thousand branches, but many of these could be just on paper kind of frauds. You want to talk, Rick, just for a second about the, that issue of membership, um, why it's never really taken off? Because in Britain, you know, in contrast, there have been times when the Labor Party has, and Corbyn actually managed to achieve it, recruited tens of thousands of people. Well, it's certainly true that there has been a long-term decline in Labor Party membership, but it hasn't, in statistical terms, been a monotonic decline. That is just simply declining one year after the, the other. There have been periods when it's picked up a bit. Uh, during the early Whitlam years the and sh shortly beforehand, Labor Party membership picked up a bit to about 43,000. But the decline in Labor Party membership has to do with this increased integration of the Labor Party into the state and into the status quo. It's got to do with the breakup of inner city working class communities to start with through suburbanisation and uh, a people living away from where they worked and then through the gentrification of those inner city suburbs, that has been a factor as well. So overall, the proportion of Labor Party voters who are also members has declined dramatically and there's been an even bigger decline in the proportion of uh, Labor Party um, members in the overall population because the number of the, the proportion of Labor Party voters has also been in long-term decline. When Tom and I wrote our book, The Labor Party, a, a decade ago, the Labor Party was claiming 50,000 members. Now, since then, there have been multiple efforts to boost Labor Party membership. What is the membership today? Supposedly about 50,000. Uh, so the proportion of Labor Party members in the population has continued to decline, and it is clear that the 
reality of those 50,000 does not compare to the reality of the 74,000 uh, before the split uh, in the mid-1950s, that increasingly members of the Labor Party are ancient people, even more ancient than me, and I'm 65, um, and so the Labor Party membership is literally dying off, uh, and there are also members of parliament or aspirant members of parliament and their families and their mates, uh, and if they are members of parliament, their staffers, along with trade union officials, uh, elected and appointed trade union officials, are uh, really the core that those groups are the core of the Labor Party these days. Well, I should add in uh, those junior aspirant politicians uh, from uh, the universities and to some extent, much lesser extent, I think, amongst young members of the uh, in trade unions who've been duchessed by union uh, leaders as uh, potential organisers and uh, who could play a role for them inside the Labor Party as well. So that the, the question of inspiration, I think, which you raised, Roz, is a very important one. Why the fuck would you want to join that kind of a party uh, if you're a worker? What has it done for you? Certainly, as Kath has said, there is some lovely rhetoric about justice and fairness and so on, but in practical terms, what have state and federal Labor, Labor governments really done for workers over a period of decades. This is not something to inspire people to get in there and to do door knocking. There's another factor, I think, that's been at work as well, and that is the membership is far less important these days than it was in the 1940s uh, and even the 1950s, let alone earlier on, where the membership was crucial for getting out the vote, doing door knocking, holding street meetings and so on. The professionalisation of the party and its publicity activities has taken off since the 1950s and the leaderships of the Labor Party, parliamentary and extra-parliamentary, are far less reliant on uh, rank-and-file members of the party getting out the vote. Now, that doesn't, that's still of some significance but the decline in the membership of the Labor Party, the hollowing out of branches, has been such that the Labor Party is now reliant on the trade unions, getting trade union members to do mm. a lot of the lead work because the members of the branches just aren't there or aren't real or are too ancient too old. to actually do the door knocking. And that was actually... No, you really, um, the empirical evidence was right there in your face when you were on the polling booths campaigning for Kath Larkin for the federal seat of Cooper in the election. And actually, it was exactly that combination of people. There were older kind of people who might be in the true believer category, even if they're just hanging on to it by some fantasy. There were the people who were employed and paid by their trade union to be there. Uh, either officials or elected um, 
delegates who were told to go and, you know, in some of the blue-collar unions were told to go and do their time on the polling booth. And then there were the student hacks who were aspirant uh, union officials and Labor Party MPs. It was just those three categories of people and basically no one else. And now Adam Somirek has said those students aren't even appreciated by the older members of the party. So that's a shame, isn't it? So, Kath, I guess um, one of the things in terms of, uh, like, the fact that that composition of the party has changed, that there's so few members and all of that, uh, you know, back in the day it was real workers, it was people who were train drivers, you know, rank and file were leaders of the party, and now we've got these lawyers and student hacks and whatever. I mean, in some ways, does it matter who's inside the Labour Party if they're doing the same things? Yeah, I feel like that the change in who's in the Labour Party is more a reflection of the problem than the problem itself. Um, like, I mean, this is like this is the trajectory. Like, why would you? We've sort of said it a, a bunch of times in different ways tonight why would you join the Labor Party like what as a like as for working class people what does it have to offer you um and that's also like the tragic thing about that is that's also reflective of the weakening of our trade union movement and of workers struggle more broadly you know there was once a fight in the unions there were you know rank and file you know workers who were committed um, to the Labor Party because they were committed to some sort of fight within the Labor Party. That wasn't always on a left-wing basis. Like there were the the, the groupers um, who, you know, managed, you know, had real um, ideological leaders uh, who, you know, convinced workers on a kind of right-wing basis to be engaged in the Labor Party to, to fight for, for something. And, you know, there was, you know, kind of a, a socialist left to push against that as well, like now, you can't really talk any real, uh, you know, any reality about um, the kind of the the different factions actually having having any real difference. But I think the the that's that's the trajectory that the party's been on. Like when Rick was sort of talking about the history of the party, how it was formed, why it was formed, it was always about uh, really pushing away from industrial struggle and pushing towards class collaboration, relying on the capitalist state to, you know, sprinkle down a few little tiny reforms. And history shows us that that's not uh, how the workers' movement goes forward. So, of course, um, you know, less working class people are joining it. Um, Yeah, so I I think, yeah, I, I feel like it's more a reflection of the problem than the actual problem itself. And, like, Plenty of like people in the Labor Party who used to be workers went on to betray in pretty awful ways. I mean, you know, Rick was, you know, talking a bit about the history of, of Ben Chifley. Like he was a train driver, um, you know, who vehemently, you know, supported World War II and a whole host of attacks um, on working class people to, to fund that war effort to see, you know, more people go off to die for fucking, you know, um, empire, like this is, yeah. So I, I don't think the categories of the people joining the party are the problem. I think they're 
the reflection of the problem. And actually what we need is a new working workers' party that is actually going to uh, fight for fight for, for workers' rights, fight for some kind of, you know, vision of socialism, you know, not the kind of, like, total, like, crap that I think gets offered up uh, by the Labor Party today. Mm. And, Rick, just to finish, I mean, the thing I think that has been probably the most commented upon in the Adam Somurek branch stacking case is the fact that it's basically about nothing except power. And there was always factions, but there would be factions who would fight about, you know, some kind of principled thing, um, some kind of, you know, slightly more left-wing faction and slightly more right-wing faction. But they would at least uh, couch it, even if it was a power thing, in some kind of ideological belief. And this has just been totally void of that. Um, So I wonder if that's possible that that would – be able to come back into the Labor Party at some point. Some genuine struggle, some, you know, more ideological um, figure, someone who would call themselves a socialist like Jeremy Corbyn, for example, you know, coming along and reforming the Labor Party from the inside. Well, I, there certainly are no signs whatsoever at all, completely not there, of anything like that happening in Australia. With an upturn in the overall level of class struggle, things might shift a bit. But what we can say about factions in the Labor Party <clears throat> is that they are simply different career hierarchies, different ways into the lolly shop that is Parliament um, through effectively through patronage uh, within the faction. And so in, in Victoria now, uh, sections of what was the left are uh, in factional, like the CFMEU, are now in a factional alliance with sections of the pretty hard, pretty hard right trade unions and operatives inside the Labor Party. So what you say about the lack of differentiation between the factions I think is absolutely true. Anthony Albanese's background was in the left wing of the Labor Party in New South Wales. In the leadership battle with Shorten, his main approach was to try and outflank Shorten to the right by demonstrating that he was more pro-business than Shorten was. So the 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 there was a kind of a symbiosis for a long, long time between the left and the right of the Labor Party. The right wing was the face that looked and spoke with business in particular and said, don't worry, we're in control. We'll keep the hotheads in our own organisation uh, on a tight leash and we will manage the system for you. And the left, which was generally quite happy to go along with the policies of the right in office, looked to the left and to the working class and said, join the Labor Party, join us uh, as the left faction or one of the left factions in the Labor Party in order to com combat the nasty right. And so there was, you know, a, a um, good cop, bad cop kind of a role performed by the, by the, the factions. That's really no longer the case. Sometimes members of the left 
may talk about talk left wing uh, and express sympathy for the oppressed and support for struggles, although that's not terribly. Like how about Jed Carney freeing all those refugees? Oh no, wait a second, they're locked up right in her constituency. Yep. Yeah, some, that there's been a slip up somewhere. Yeah, so that the difference between the, the, the factions is absolutely minimal. It's a difference in some rhetoric, only some of the times. As for a Corbyn figure appearing in the Australian Labor Party, it is impossible for somebody like Corbyn uh, to uh, gain prominence in the Labor Party in Australia. There might be other mechanisms that, that might revitalise a left wing in the union movement and maybe in the Labor Party, but not like Corbyn. Corbyn, for decades, broke the discipline of the parliamentary Labor Party in Britain for decades. And, you know, to his vast credit, he broke with broke that discipline on a series of questions that related to industrial relations, that related to foreign policy, that related to the treatment of oppressed groups. Uh, very impressive. Inside the ALP, since the 1890s, there has been the pledge, caucus discipline. You break caucus discipline, that is, the, the majority decision of the parliamentary party, and, mate, you're fucking out. So the possibility of somebody coming to prominence the way in which Cormann did just does not exist inside the Australian Labor Party. But if we look at the Corbyn experience, what do we learn? The Labor Party grew hundreds and hundreds of percent in terms of its membership because there was this left-winger who, by a kind of a fluke, got to be the leader of the party and made left-wing noises and, and uh, advocated left-wing policies gradually watering down what he said, but nevertheless, it was a huge boost to the Labor Party. That could not be tolerated either by the overwhelming majority of the parliamentarians in, the, uh, in, in Westminster, nor could it be tolerated by the bulk of the trade union bureaucracy or the quite substantial full-time party machine of the British Labor Party and Corbyn was marginalised. His members, uh, the members who supported him, prominent members who supported him, were expelled on absolutely bogus charges of anti-Semitism because they were critical of Israel and supported the Palestinian cause. And eventually, uh, it came down to: it's better that Labor lose the election than that Labor win the election with with Jeremy Corbyn as the leader. And once he'd lost. He was out and under Stammer, uh, uh, who is, uh, has been knighted for being a public fucking prosecutor in his previous life, uh, yeah. under him the purging is continuing uh, okay. so that there will not be another Corbyn uh, who can come up uh, and be some sort of a challenge to the dominance of the right wing of the party. And what that... There's a lesson for Australia here as well. The Labor Party is no way forward for, for the working class. It is an obstacle to working class struggle 
And if workers want a better lot, they can't rely on somebody to do it for them. They can't rely on Labor politicians and they can't rely on union officials. They've got to take matters into their own hands through their own trade unions, through militant rank and file action. And Kath, I wonder if we could just finish with um, what your workmates said to you when you were coming on this podcast to talk about the Labor Party. Yeah, so I was chatting to a workmate who actually used to be a member of the Labor Party and I said, oh, I'm doing a podcast after work uh, about the ALP. And he was like, sort of like, why? Uh, and um, I said, oh, you know, what, what, do, what do you think I should say? And he was like, they're fucked. End of podcast. <laughs> well, we spent, uh, you know, 45 minutes saying basically that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty good summary. Um, so thank you, uh, both of you, Rick and Kath, for being back on Red Flag Radio. Uh, look out for Kath's campaign to be Lord Mayor of Melbourne and look at the Victorian Socialists if you are thinking of who to vote for, um, in Victoria at least in some places, who is who are genuine socialists and not the Labour Party. So, um, yeah. Uh, and also you can vote for me in the council elections, but yeah. there'll be more on that to come. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So thank you, Liam, uh, Rick, Kath, and you're listening to Red Flag Radio. We have a world to win. Red Flag Radio.